Hello and welcome to another episode of Spiritual Success, where I'm going to be talking to a fellow published author, Bess Matassa. Now, she has published multiple different books on astrology and tarot, as well as a card deck. She's based in New York City, and you will hear some of those New York City street noises in the background of our conversation. I loved having a chat with her because we talk about the process of publishing a book and birthing a book, becoming an author, and we talk about tarot. And if you know me, these are two of my favorite topics to talk about. Not only are we talking about books, but we're talking specifically about her most recent book about tarot, which has just come out this year, The Tarot Almanac. Her work is really interesting. Bess Matassa is an astrologer and tarot reader, and she creates astrology-focused experiences like birth chart walking tours and zodiac perfume making classes. As well as being the author of several books, she has consulted for Teen Vogue, Alme Cosmetics, Ace Hotel, and the Rubin Museum of Art, among others. So if by any chance this episode inspires you to want to learn how to read tarot for your own life, I do have a course called Divine Tarot. So I'll link that in the show notes. It's not normally there. It's on my website, but I'll put it in the show notes because this episode relates to it. I also have an upcoming program called Author Accelerator. And if you're listening to this in the future, maybe it will already be out, but I'll put the waitlist in the show notes as well so that you have everything you need for your own tarot reading journey and your journey to becoming an author after listening to this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Spiritual Success Podcast with me, Liz Roberta, a Hay House author and spiritual life and business coach. I'm here to help you harness your inner world as an entrepreneur so that you can unleash your full power and profits, taking you behind the scenes of your business and giving you everything you need to make energy a key part of your strategy for success. It's completely possible to have clarity, inner peace and balance as you climb the ladder to six and seven figures in your solar business. So let me show you how as we dive into another episode of Spiritual Success. If you know it's time to align with your purpose and build your dream spiritual business, Spiritual Business Bootcamp is open and enrolling right now. This is a live 12-week group program to help you start, launch, and scale your ultimate dream business. We're going to talk about marketing, sales, launching, and also all of the tech pieces and foundations that you need to get set up so that you can build your social media following and also your email list as well. We're going to talk about getting visible. We're going to talk about some of the mindset and energetic pieces, and we're going to talk about sales and marketing. I want you to feel so confident going out there as an entrepreneur doing your soul aligned work. Whether you're a coach or a healer, it's so important that you're able to build a business around that and create profit for yourself every single month. So if you feel like you're not so confident in that area, you have amazing gifts, but you're not so sure about the business side of things, maybe you've given it a try yourself and it's not quite working or growing the way that you want it to, but you really want to hit those consistent 5k months, this is going to be perfect for you. It also allows you to make friends in the industry as well, because you're going to be with other entrepreneurs who are also building and scaling their business. So I would love to invite you inside Spiritual Business Bootcamp while it's open. The link is in the show notes, or you can go to lizroberta.com forward slash SBB. That's lizroberta.com forward slash SBB. Hi, Bess. Hi, Liz. 
I'm so excited to have you here today to talk about one of my favorite topics that I haven't talked about on the podcast yet, which is tarot. Now, a lot of people listening will have been with me for a few years, back when I used to do paid tarot readings. I also have a tarot program. I do a monthly tarot live every month on my Instagram account on the first of the month. I'm all about tarot. So I'm really excited to see that you're writing a book about tarot. And I'd love to hear about how your relationship with tarot began and when it began. Yeah, so much like you, I think, Liz, it began as a wee, as a wee babe. And um, I think I was like 12, 13. It was like early adolescence. And, you know, it was this moment, of course, where you're trying to kind of figure out who you are and what you're about and how you fit into the world around you. And for me, I was a kid who was very, who ran very fiery. Um, and so there was always this kind of sensation or this desire to connect with something that was larger than life, you know, kind of in, to infuse the mundane and the everyday with something mythological. And so I found tarot and astrology around that age. And remember my first deck, the Aquarian deck. And it was funny, I actually rediscovered or refound that original deck um, not too long ago that was, you know, it was at my mom's house. And I went through all of the cards again, and there was one card missing, and it was the lover's card. And I have this like recollection of being in middle school and playing, you know, and, you know, doing uh, spreads with my friends and everything. And there was one friend who like really coveted the lover's card and loved that card. And I think she must have removed it from, from the deck. So now my like original deck is at 77 cards, but you know, minus the lovers. So it was kind of a funny little thing. But yeah, and that was the time that it came into my life. And it was such a balm at that moment for just amplifying everyday experience and infusing this deeper this deeper connection to these larger archetypes and stories and then you know astrology and tarot followed with you know followed me through the rest of my life from that point and around the time like the end of my Saturn return you know probably 32 or so 31 um, I basically entered this total psychological crisis breakdown you know wanted to leave the planet was not interested in being here anymore. It was really, really confronting time. And I refound astrology and tarot at that juncture on a deeper level. I was working with a therapist at that point who was a Jungian who, you know, was also an astrologer and, you know, was finding tarot. And those were my only tethers really at that moment. And that was at that point, my professional career began. I started offering readings on the side. I was an academic at the time and doing other kinds of work. And um, so, yeah, it was it was like childhood joy. It was headlamp in the middle of deep and profound darkness. It's been so many different things over the years. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely relate because that's what it was like for me. I always had this spiritual interest and I would read tarot in my room when I was doing an economics degree, like it was always there, but it was always very secret and very hidden. I have the Wheel of Fortune tattooed on my arm and people would always think it was a compass. And I was like, no, it's not a compass, even though that's what it looks like to a lot of people who don't read tarot. So it was always very kind of hidden. And I didn't know how I could make it into a career. So what did that transition look like for you? You just said that you worked in academia. Um, but how long ago was this and how did you make that transition? Oh, man. <laughs> that transition was totally wild and totally emergent. You know, it was kind of like being in the trenches and not really seeing, you know, what was happening or how it was happening. And, you know, I tend to be kind of like a 
a non, I'm not very strategic person <laughs> generally. I don't, I'm not like kind of a seeing the panorama or, you know, I'm sort of down in it and then things kind of emerge from the ground up. Um, but this was about 10 years ago uh, and I had just finished up my doctorate and, you know, I was teaching on the side. I was in the field of urban history and urban studies and, you know, in basically in crisis mode and just trying to kind of, you know, psychologically stay afloat. And, it really just sort of one thing led to another. You know, I, I gave my first reading, um, you know, professional like paid uh, astrology reading. I remember it was on November 1st, Day of the Dead uh, in 2013. And at first it was this hybrid. It was something that I called street signs because I was an urban historian and an urban geographer. And so I would take people to areas of New York that I felt would help them connect kind of symbolically and experientially with their birth chart. And we would like walk out their chart and visit sites in the landscape that were, you know, kind of marriages between their energies and and the built environment. And so that's sort of how it began. That was sort of the bridge. And then that started to kind of just grow naturally. I didn't really have any notion at the time that astrology and tarot were kind of making this, you know, they've never really been gone, but they were making a particular kind of comeback that was starting to stir up at that time. And, you know, a lot of my cosmic colleagues and people in the mystical world, you know, that came up like a lot of a lot of things were happening, I think, around that time, 2012, 2013 for people. I don't remember what was happening astrologically. I think it was maybe Saturn and Scorpio or something. I don't know. But, you know, it just sort of like one thing started to feed into another. And this street signs offering I had started to grow into all of these sort of mystical material world collaborations. So I was you know, translating the language of astrology and tarot into uh, working with other collaborators who used different modalities like, you know, astrology and perfume making or tarot dance parties or all of these kinds of ways uh, in which we can invite these archetypes into the physical and into the tangible because these were how these archetypes arrived for me when I was a kid. You know, my first astrology book was Parker's Astrology, this classic volume that had all these glossy pages of you know, the 12 signs and where you could find them in the material world, like the color correspondences and the animals and the landscapes. And so that just sort of kept rolling. And I've always been a writer. So at the beginning, I started doing, you know, horoscopes and columns and things like that for digital magazines. And then that started to grow into book form stuff. And yeah, it just, um, I don't know that there was any, um, any linearity to it at all, or any kind of like, this was the step by step through which this happened, but it was really life on the ground. And it was my own, yeah, my own use of the modality. And yeah, a lot of a lot of ruggedness, a lot of, you know, not really understanding what was happening or how it was happening. And then as this grew, I sort of moved away from teaching and it just naturally amplified. And then here we are today. So <laughs> I totally agree about 2012. I, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe that was meant to be a big event in the Mayan calendar mm. because I know there was a big event around that time and a lot of people did start waking up. So that definitely corresponds. Do you have a favorite tarot card? And if so, why? Oh boy. Oh, wow. That's, that's interesting. I think I have um, a very uh, 
very deep affinity with and kind of have been in a lifelong learning around the strength card. Um, in in my, I know there's different schools of thought around whether the strength is you know, a strength card is uh, the number eight or the number eleven. But you know, in my experience, I, I receive it as a number eight, and my life path is a number eight, so it's kind of my birth card. And I have a lot of Leo um, in my chart, and there's you know this correspondence between strength and Leo, and I think that that card has been definitely my deepest teacher. You know, it's like when I kind of lose my moorings or lose my bearings, it's for me, it's been this drumbeat of whatever happens, just come forward and come closer and try to 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 bear yourself to some degree and to show up warm, you know, on the side of life. And for me, that's really kind of the heart of that card. And uh, yeah, I would say the strength card has definitely been um, front and center in my life. What about you? Definitely the Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. I mean, I have it. It's the only one I have tattooed. I feel like that's a big commitment. But <laughs> I, I love it because it means destiny, fate, good fortune. Uh, in the corner, in the four corners, there's animals reading books. And I'm an author, as you will definitely get onto that. And so that's a very powerful card. And because I have such a strong relationship with it, it will often show up for me at important pivotal moments in my life when I'm doing a reading so it was the outcome card when I was doing a relationship reading back in 2011 I was seeing someone else at the time and it said one of the pages and then the three of swords which is heartbreak and then this new page and for people who listening who don't know the pages can represent young men and then it was heartbreak and then the outcome was the wheel of fortune and I was seeing someone else who was in a band like a metal band and he was touring Mm -hmm. Europe And he basically broke it off while he was on tour. And that was the heartbreak. And then this new guy came in who ended up being my husband. And this was 12 years ago. And the outcome card was the Wheel of Fortune, Fate and Destiny. When I was trying to choose my book to pitch to Hay House as well, I had three options in mind. One of them being a tarot book. I kid you not, which is why I'm so excited for this discussion because you've gone on to publish one. One of my options that I had in mind was a tarot book. But one of them came out as the Wheel of Fortune. And that was the book that eventually became Living in Tune, which is the book that I published. It was a book about intuition and finding your life purpose. And that was the Wheel of Fortune. So whenever the Wheel of Fortune comes up, because I have a strong relationship with it, I will get shown it to say very clearly, go in that direction. That's the way to go. Or something significant is going to happen because I'm so attached to that card. Have you had any times where you've done a reading and it has foretold something significant in your life. Are there any of those stories that come to your mind? Yeah, um, I think for me, it's it's interesting. I don't want to get too like philosophical or heady here, but I don't necessarily work with the cards in a way that feels futuristic. It feels kind of, um, I guess, a kind of a rising. I was trying to describe this to somebody the other day because someone was asking me about, you know, how do you kind of view past, present, future, and chronological time through the lens of the cards and the chart? And it's almost like I feel like when I'm doing a reading, there's what we're doing together, me and the person and the cards, is drawing to the surface almost a current that's already unfolding less consciously within the person and their field and inviting them kind of into the current. So rather than feeling like there's an outcome or something over here and the person's over here, it's kind of like what is naturally arising in this moment and then how can we, you know, what's the next step, the next step, the next step, which then, you know, of course puts like a lot of 
I don't want to say burden, but responsibility on us as readers and as practitioners or users of the, you know, having a relationship with the cards, because then it's like, oh, if we're reading tarot for the present moment, what's going to stop us from pulling cards five minutes later and five minutes later on this issue? And then like, where is it now? Where is it now? And suddenly we're covered in like all 78 cards. But I think that there's, for me, it's sort of like a like the current that's running under things, you know, and that's part, that's part free will. And that's part, I mean, it's the breaking of the binary between fate and free will. It's something else. It's some hybrid of our will and the will of all things. It's, it actually kind of reminds me of the tower card in some ways, because in my interpretive through my interpretive lens of the the tower card there's this kind of irrepressibility this is ruled by mars in astrology there's this idea yes i have a will but so does everything else around me and we're all kind of like how do we rise to sort of meet the natural unfolding of things so i don't know if a, a particular memory of something of a foretelling comes to mind but i definitely and the tower card is popping out for me around this idea of, you know, times when I've pulled for myself and I know that there's a kind of inevitable current happening or a momentum or something irrepressible that wants to be expressed. And then that card will signal to me, like, just kind of let it rip or let it, you know, unfold uh, to that degree. So I don't know if that's a, that's not necessarily a direct answer to your question. That's sort of how I see time and through the lens of tarot. Yeah, you bring up such a good point, which I've also realized myself as well. As I've gone through a big power awakening, I used to look at it very deterministically. Like this is the outcome. Oh, this is inevitably going to happen. I have no control over this. It's written in the stars. That's it. And then last year I started to play with the energy of I can change this. I get to choose what I'm reflecting out. And I really started to embody that my inner world creates my outer world. And I started to shift things. So I can think of one example when a client was going to sign with me, then she got a wobble and she wasn't too sure. And when I first pulled the cards, it said yes. And then when she had a wobble, they said no. And I was like, this is interesting. And of course, the tarot cards aren't yes or no. So the way that I ask my questions is, please show me a card that I interpret as good to mean yes, or a card that I interpret as bad to mean no. There are no yes or no cards, but I know for me, I have some that I would think of as a good card or a bad card. And so they switched and I was like, this is very interesting. And so I decided to change how I was feeling about the situation. I embodied total confidence. I took control of my own energy so I wasn't wobbling. And I just felt very grounded and confident and secure, but also unattached that this person was going to come around and she was going to sign with me as a client. And when I did that, not only did the tarot cards change and say, oh, okay, yes, yeah, she is going to sign with you. She did then sign with me. So that was huge. I was in Costa Rica at the time and that really changed my relationship with Tarot because I'd always, for over a decade, seen it as telling me the past, present and future mm. instead of this is a snapshot of your reality right now, what your energy is reflecting right now, what you're manifesting right now. But you have enough power to be able to change that and choose what you want and embody something different. So I love that you brought that up 
because that is definitely a shift that I've had. And I think for a long time, without realizing, I was being very powerless. Mm. And I used to get a lot of readings as well and treat them in the same way. I'd hold on to what they said, like that was definitely going to happen. I really didn't realize my power and my ability to create the outcome that I wanted. And I didn't understand so much about time and timelines and highest potential and how you always have choice. Everything is always a crossroads. You can choose A or B. You can choose to go a different way. And I've definitely had readings like that where I've been told something I don't like. And so I go, actually, no, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. And I'm going to go in a different direction. Can you relate to that? Yeah. And I think it's it's actually reminding me of a conversation I had recently with um, a student, you know, because I teach tarot and astrology as well, like one-to-one mentorship and in group settings. And um, we were talking about reversals and, you know, it's like a hot button, you know, in the tarot communities, like, you know, do you read with reversals or not? And, you know, by reversals, if, if listeners are tuning into tarot for the first time, reversal is just, you know, when you pull a card from the deck and the image appears, you know, it's flipped upside down, you've pulled it upside down the card. And, you know, I know lots of tarot readers that do read with reversals and some who don't. And um, there have been times that I have, but by and large for the bulk of my like professional reading career, I haven't, I haven't used reversals. And the student was asking me about that. And for me, the explanation was there's a, there's a kind of life world or a kind of climate that exists in each card. And then the interesting thing for me is to attune ourselves to how we arrive, like you're describing in the energy of that card we might be upside down to the card. We might be sideways to the card. We might be backing away from it or running away from it or running toward it. Or there's all of this directionality that we as energetic beings experience when we enter the landscape of a card. And so rather than it being out here where there's a meaning, there's an outcome or and it's this or it's this, there's a kind of climate or topography inside of each card that's about learning and growing and exploring and kind of sniffing around a certain life theme. And then, you know, it's up to us to figure out, you know, we might not be available certain days to we'll pull a card and I might be like, hell no, I'm not going into that card. Like, no, you know, and, and just to, to notice our own psychology and our own emotionality. And I think what you're bringing forward about um, responsibility and autonomy and receiving readings too, is a really important one because those are meant to be collaborative, co-creative acts with you and the reader and the cards. And if there's anything that's coming through, I mean, you can like use it as an exercise in contrast. If there's a message that comes through that you're not available for or feels intuitively, you know, not, it's not landing for you. And yeah, I think it's so important to notice our own texture and our own particularity when we arrive to the cards. And, you know, there might be some days where we also want to pull intentionally. And this can be a little abstract, I think, for people who are first working with the cards because they're thinking, oh, I need to flip, pull them blind, you know, not see them. And then we flip over and we decide our fate or we figure out what the cards are. But you can also use these as intentional intention setting archetypes. You know, if you feel like you're in need of support, these are your allies, like your card comrades. You can go to your deck and say, hey, I want to feel supported in this physical realm and in the glory of my materiality. Maybe I'm going to pull out the queen of pentacles or, you know, another kind of earthy card to feel and prop it up on my dashboard or on my desk and, you know, work consciously with that. So yeah, totally. I think um, always checking into where we are oriented as we arrive to our decks is something that's and arrive in a reading, you know, and choice for sure. Such a good point. So I also don't read 
reversed for quite a few years. And it was just that when I was laying them out, like 90% of them would be reversed. And I just got a bit (laughs) sick of it because it inverts the meaning. It's a little bit less clear. So I just turned them all the way up and I did all of my paid readings that way. No one's ever complained. So yeah, I don't read reversed anymore. But definitely agree about the energy that you bring to a reading, because I always say if you're feeling frantic, do not touch your cards. The amount of times I used to pull cards for myself when I was in distress about love or worrying about a job opportunity and that energy I was putting into the cards of fear and desperation and lack was very much affecting the reading that I was getting and I would also overread as well so pulling them too many times asking the same question again and again and again and being frustrated and eventually it would be like okay here you go. But then I didn't believe it because I was like, well, you've told me all these other things. It was just very, very bad energy. So now, I mean, luckily I don't get into that state so much because I've developed on my spiritual journey. But back in the day, I I was very kind of anxious and was using them in the wrong way and not really honoring them and respecting them as a sacred tool and an ally and a companion. I now keep them in a very ornate wooden box that has red velvet on the inside. And I definitely see them as this kind of energy energetic entity and this oracle that I can choose to work with, but not something that has more power than me or power over me in any way. I very much see it as a a relationship now. So at what point did you decide that you were going to write a book about tarot? How did this start coming into being? Did it come in through inspiration, through your stories that you developed in your business? How did it come to be? Yeah, so I think um, it was a number of, or maybe it was four or five years ago, you know, I was kind of, um, I don't want to say a bit burnt, but just um, the kind of digital writing format has never really been totally for me. I, I like kind of a more durational sensation. And I think it was like, you know, I, and I love, I love like horoscopic content. I love, you know, card pulls of the day, all of that kind of stuff. But I was sort of at this juncture where everything was sort of falling into a hole and it was very time specific. So it's like somebody reads their horoscope, you know, I'm producing this writing and then, you know, they're not usually going to go back and read this, read this, you know, message again at another point. And, you know, so at that point I started to just open up to the the desire to have more kind of book length content. And of course, books are ultimately potentially ephemeral too. And they, you know, they stop being published, you know, republished and all that stuff. But just the kind of tangible materiality of that, I think I was just at a turning point with where I wanted my art to kind of land. And um, so I had started, I think it was like maybe 2017, um, started to write astrology books and, you know, wrote a, a number of those, or, you know, a number of those, maybe three or four astrology books. And um, the fourth one, I think it was, was astrology an astrology almanac. So it was sort of a companion to the wheel of the year. And I really had, I had originally intended it to be like an evergreen, you know, kind of like anything that you could use year on year to invite you into Aries season, Taurus season, et cetera. Um, and it ended up being a, a little bit more time, time specific, but um, this idea of like a, a seasonal companion and an evergreen journey through the 12 sign archetypes was really, you know, top of mind for me. And it's always been 
really at the core of my teaching and the way that I relate to astrology and tarot is this idea of the 12 signs being at the root and the heart of everything. And it's the way that I experience tarot as well. You know, every single tarot card bears a kind of astrological essence or an imprint of one of the 12 signs in some you know way, shape or form. And if not the 12 signs specifically, the elementals, the four elements. And, you know, so this way of navigating the deck and the chart, you know, the way I teach astrology is, you know, I, and I know people learning astrology for the first time can sometimes get all twisted and tangled in the technicality of it. And for me, it's like, if you understand Aries from every single angle, you can possibly understand it. You have a gateway into the planet Mars. You have a gateway into the first house. You know, you know, you can sort of identify and intuitively interpret for yourself when you see the presence of this, you know, and in the tarot for, you know, Aries, you can find it in a card like the two of wands or the tower card or, and so this natural kind of hybrid between astrology and tarot was always really top of mind for me. And then, you know, I want something that was a kind of evergreen journey through the rhythm of the year and these kind of tarot cards that step forward in each astrological season. And so the tarot almanac came out of that, that way of using astrology. And I'm not, I'm not an astrologer who is like super drilled down into transits of like, you know, what is squaring what on this particular day of this particular time, really where I find the most expanse and ease and exuberance is in you know, noticing, okay, Virgo season, we're in it again, what's coming up like big thematics. And like, there's so much to mine from each of the sign archetypes. It's never too basic. There's all of these different angles. And so tricking out the, you know, kind of prismatic nature of each archetype through looking at all of the card representatives in the tarot. And so, yeah, I think that's, it came out of like the, te- you know, my, the way that I teach, the way that I use the modalities myself and this um, desire for something too, that isn't so time specific that we're sort of scrambling to kind of keep up or, or, you know, when people get into kind of right timing, I think with astrology and tarot, sometimes it can feel a a little bit powerless, like what we've been talking about, like, is this the right or Mercury retrograde? Like, what am I going to do? You know, like uh, versus, okay, there's this kind of seasonal expanse. There's this month unfolding. I'm going to play with some cards. I'm going to call in some energies. Um, So that's, that's how it came to be. I love that. I just want to read a bit of the summary that I have of your book because it definitely appealed to me and it summarizes what you're saying. So by providing a framework built on astrology and seasonal magic, the Tarot Almanac offers a method to develop skills and flex your intuitive understanding of tarot as days pass, the moon waxes and wanes, and the flora and fauna of this planet imbue the earth with the constant language of change. Each month highlights key cards, affirmations, themes, and undated events like equinoxes. Rituals and journal prompts strengthen readers' connection to the cards, which helps them not only understand themselves, but also creates a more holistic relationship to their divinatory practice. Uh, It just sounds so gorgeous, so soulful. When did the journey begin? When did you start creating this book? Um, So the original notion for this book was quite it was a handful of years ago because it came sort of out of when I was working on the astrology almanac, which was a similar kind of format. Um, So I'd say it's probably four or five years ago that started maybe. And then there was like different iterations of where it was going to find its home and the shape it was going to take and all of that. And then, you know, as you know, like writing a book is like, 
it's not just this isn't an overnight process. So there's, you know, I, I think to from publication back, sort of rolling it back, it was at least a year, a year and a half or so before that in terms of, you know, drafting and all that good stuff. And so, yeah, this one and and this particular book, you know, I'm not going to lie, was a, a particularly fraught creative journey. You know, I've had other book length projects that are, you know, every every book baby is like a different kind of a process of gestating and birthing. And this one, um, this one was a really, um, it was a rigorous process. I had a full draft of the book at some point and it just like wasn't working. And I basically like rewrote the whole thing from scratch in like three weeks time to, you know, meet a new deadline. And it was a pretty, yeah, it was a pretty wild one. So what you see before you, if you connect with this book is there's, there's a lot of love in there. There's a lot of um, ruggedness and musculature and all sorts of things. But yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things. And it's, you know, also what I do, you know, I obviously am an astrologer and a tarot reader, but I also um, help people in the mystical space and in the wellness space. You know, I do what I call midwitchery, you know, which is I'm a developmental editor and a book coach. And um, so it's always really interesting to me. And I use astrology and tarot in my practice, you know, with clients helping them birth their creative projects and their book their book length projects into being. And, you know, it's such a psychological and emotional and evolutionary exercise to create this thing, you know, as much as it is an object and an intellectual transmission and all of that. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's always exciting to me because each project is totally new. And when I'm working with other people, I see their whole life worlds kind of emerging and evolving through the creative process. And the astrology and tarot of the creative process is something that really really fascinates me. And, you know, that's uh, something that I think I'm going to be working on drawing the connections between more formally in the future. Sounds amazing. I'm just having a look at your cover now. Oh, it's just fabulous. It feels so witchy. So I love that you brought that word up. How did you find the process of getting a book deal? And when you were going through the creation process of the book, I know for me, there was definitely some disagreements about the cover art, the title, the wording, you know, that back and forth. It's very much a collaborative process, which I think sometimes people don't realize when you're working with a publisher. It's, I know for me anyway, and other people I've spoken to, you don't just write the book and then they send it off to print. There are some disagreements along the way. So how did you find that process first of getting a book? deal and then as you were going through the editing process and collaborating with your publisher yeah so the editorial process to me is something i've been pretty mired in for a long time and you know lots of different forms and i remember years ago it was um you know it was like tough in the beginning really to you know to see in the early days like things augmented and fractured and you know strikes through and all of that kind of stuff and i think i've just I've just gotten like, I've just gotten older and more kind of like uh, seasoned along the way in terms of um, knowing that there's some and, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm like all Aries and Leo. So I do have an attachment certainly to like what's mine and like what bears the mark of me. But it's been a really interesting journey to notice to notice the act of giving away and giving over in the creative process. And I think at this juncture, you know, I'm so kind of used to getting banged up and knocked around a little bit in that process um, that I think it's a, it's an exercise in, you know, I know that phrase like killing your darlings or whatever it is, you know, with the editorial process where, you know, noticing kind of like where the most tension is around certain phrases or passages of your text or whatever it is and, and how you kind of like, 
choosing choosing your battles has been choosing the battles has been like definitely um, something that I've been in in a learning around for a long time, you know, and I'm definitely more resilient in that capacity now because it's like I know also that like this isn't it needs to be tra- you know it needs to be translated and each edit- editor that meets it is it is a translator of a certain you know flavor and then it's going to be translated the ultimate act of translation it's gonna, it's going to be out in the world and I have no control over how people interpret it and Amazon reviews and like you know what happens in that in that realm and so but it is funny because um, while I was birthing this book I was working with a client uh, book coaching client and it was his first first time kind of putting a proposal together and and working toward that and you know we were having some kind of emotional complexities and really excavating some things it was a very scorpionic process and you know i was having a laugh because as much as i'm like more seasoned and quote unquote mature and whatever whatever you know in this book in this particular book process i did notice moments where i would be so attached to a word or so attached to a sentence there was this one sentence or one word that didn't actually make it into the book. And I won't get into like the, you know, the intricacies of it, but basically I had turned the um, noun catnip into a verb, like to get catnipped by something or to catnip somebody, you know, to sort of entice in that way. And the editors just like, weren't having it. They were like, we don't know what this means, like garbage, not garbage, but like get it out of this book. And I was, I got so insane about catnipped. I was like, it's got to make it in the book. Like it was crazy. I was like, you know, losing sleep over this one freaking word. And so, you know, like having some humor in the process too, I think, and noticing like, yes, I've evolved a lot in my, um, my resilience in that arena, but there's always these things that are really going to be close to our hearts that we're attached to. Um, in terms of actually like the deal and everything, this one was was um, a pretty a pretty natural fit. It was a publisher I had worked with before and an editor that I had worked with before, and so you know there wasn't a, there wasn't a huge kind of like song and dance around it. But before kind of landing back. Well, I actually, there was a little bit of a song and dance, not like she and I wanted to work together and we wanted to have it find a home there, but there was, you know, a, a lengthy lead up to actually kind of getting it where it needed to go and, you know, getting it, um, getting the the deal signed and other people on board with the notion. So there were different iterations of it, but yeah, it's, it's funny just noticing those attachments and, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I would, the, the me who was like writing 10 years ago or so, like would not even recognize the me that's able to sort of like give over. And at the same time, of course, I've got my, my own psychology around words and phrases that I get super attached to. Can totally relate to everything you said. I was the same and I really learned, I mean, I've only done one book so far, but I really learned that you have to pick your battles and it's very much negotiation because you get really attached to some things, but you can't be like that with every single thing. You have to work with them. And ultimately my intention was to be so happy with the book that I don't believe it could be any better. And that's what I ended up with. I think it's the best possible cover art, title, subtitle, contents of the book that I think it could be. And that was all because of give and take. And that was huge for me because it was really hard, like you said about you earlier on with your first projects, it can be a shock and you're so attached to it. And when we're the channel and we're the vessel, it feels like the words are sacred. 
But it can be really helpful to have that outside perspective and have other people read it. And like you mentioned, multiple different editors, which again, I don't think people realize it's not just one editor. Oh God, it's like 15 of them. <laughs> yeah, and different teams. You've got the proofreaders, yeah. the copy editors, um, the commissioning editor reads it first. So it's a lot of different eyes on it. And I remember when it got through to the proofreading stage and I was like, oh, they're literally just looking for typos. Like this mm-hmm. is the, and she's like <laughs> coming back with all these ideas and chipping in. And I was like, excuse me, yeah. we're done. We're not changing any more words. And we're like never done too. And it's, you know, and like then it's in, and I, I don't always, I don't know, maybe I need to develop a little more tolerance around it. But once a book comes out, I, I kind of like don't want to even see because I know there's errors in there too. And that's like another thing that's, if you read any book, you like, there are like, even if it's had 500 sets of eyes on it, there's always something that kind of slips through. And I remember when, when Ruby Warrington, Warrington and I were collaborating on the Numinous Astrology deck years ago, you know, we had been through so many different rounds and so much proofing. And then the, the final cut, you know, is sent. I have the object in my hands and the, the card for Aries and Ruby and I are both Aries sons. And, it was, it had like a wrong word on it. Like that was not meant to be on the Aries card. And we were both like, holy shit, Jesus. And it was like such a humbling moment and such a like, you know, you can't control, like these are, these are like ephemeral messages that are coming through. And as much as I've like enjoyed the durational quality of having like the materiality of the book and all of this, it's like, it's mutable. It's on its way elsewhere. It's, you know, and so yeah, it's um, it's super funny, but I, I don't think a lot of people know about like how many it's just like you don't just like sit down and uh, write my sing my song, write my story. And then it's like packaged the next day. And here it is. It's like there's so many acts of co-creation and collaboration that happen in the process, you know, and thankfully so. Yeah, totally. I had two typos in my book, killed me. And I remember the guy because I did two days of reading it as an audio book, two full days in the studio. And I remember one of the staff there, because there were multiple producers and things, and he said, this is normally when people find the typos. And this is my hubris before the fall. I was like, oh, there's definitely not. We've read it so many times. <laughs> and of course, as I was reading the audiobook, spotted one. And then one of my yeah. friends actually spotted one after that as well. But it's madness. The amount of times you read it and the amount of other people that read it and your eye just skips over them. So yeah, it definitely does happen. But I'm very excited about your book. What would you like to tell people about it? How would you describe it? And who is it for? Well, I think it's for the whole continuum of astro and tarot curious people. I think if you're a newbie, hopefully it provides you with a really immediate kind of vivid sensational journey through the wheel of the year that feels accessible. Um, And for me, again, it's like, learning tarot like astrology i think can start to feel a little overwhelming when you're in this mode of like you know trying to memorize 78 cards and then working through these elaborate spreads and like trying to figure out all this kind of technicality and so i think remembering that you can tether each of the 78 cards to one of these 12 signs and even if that is feels overly complicated to one of the four elements and so um for newbies i think it will work quite sweetly uh, that way and then for people who are more seasoned as all of us as tower readers astrologers we have really different interpretive lenses and different you know kind of language for me it's kind of this synesthetic language that comes through when I read and when I write about tarot and astrology. And so, you know, looking at that marriage between tarot and astrology, and I don't 
really feel there are some books out there about the the kind of relationship between the two, but not quite in this way, I don't think. And so I think people who are astrologers who are looking to incorporate tarot in, you know, a different way into their own practice, um, people who are tarot readers who are looking to kind of vivify and, um, you know, access this kind of sensorial glimpse into the world of the cards will enjoy it. And in terms of things to say about it, I think Hopefully it's going to be a balm and sort of an antidote to this feeling of uh, having to kind of scramble around and check your calendar every five seconds for the moon and the this and all of this kind of sensation and really be an empowering way and an autonomous way to invite these energies. Look at kind of the overarching, exactly what we were talking about, Liz, this, this idea of yes, there being an undercurrent or a current of cosmic change that a rhythm that we follow, you know, that is emerging underneath us, around us, but we're also a part of that, a part of that current and carriers or conveyors of that current. And so really, hopefully this book helping to break some of that binary between the feeling that we're either using these modalities as very willful ones, like I'm going to manifest, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to like make sure all the conditions are right and pull the right cards and make sure my chart is the right timing. And then I'm going to flex or total powerlessness. And like, I'm just going to drift in the sea in the soup and come what may and, you know, get the readings that I get. And so um, hopefully, hopefully it'll be a, a space that exists between those two poles. Love that. I always preach this message now about balance. And it sounds like you were describing the extremes of the masculine and the feminine there. And it's residing somewhere in between the two. So, so exciting. Huge congratulations for the birth of this project. You said it's taken you years. Um, I know that it has because I know that my <laughs> book was, um, yeah, 2018 to 2022. So, yeah, four years for mine. So I know how much work goes into it. And I'm so excited for you. The last question that I ask all of my guests is what is your favorite thing about doing this work? Oof. I think it's the feeling of creating more life from existing life. There's this feeling that when I work with these modalities, that there is a bigger story, a more saturated with color and sound and light and all sorts of sensory, you know, enjoyments, a story that gets infused into our existence. And so, you know, it's, I don't know, I think there's something kind of like the meaning making process, you know, through these modalities and the monumentality of that and, you know, the kind of amplification that happens. And I see this in readings and in classes and in, you know, other, the way that other practitioners use these modalities, this sense of, yeah, I think of just sort of tricking out life and giving it a little bit more sparkle and flair. And yeah, I think, uh, I think that would be my answer to that question. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. I know people Thank are going to love this episode. Where can people find you? Where is your home online? Where do you hang out the most online? And where can people find your book? Um, so I don't hang out all too much, all that much online. I'm like a, a bit of a Luddite and like a late, uh, a young Gen Xer, but I do have my website and I think I'm the only person named Best Matassa who exists, at least in the Google sphere. So if uh, my website is just my name and uh, I do have a, a newsletter that I call a love letter um, that comes out a couple times a month uh, that has all sorts of astrology and tarot treats in it. Um, occasionally I'm on Instagram, not too vibrantly, but I do show up there on occasion with some posts. Um, and yeah, I, I do one-to-one -one sessions 
and mentorships and offer classes and group experiences. And yeah, um, I think the best place is probably uh, on my website. Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks, Liz. If you enjoyed this episode today, let me know by sharing it to your stories and tagging me on Instagram at IamLizRoberta, which is where I'm usually hanging out between recording podcast episodes. You can download my free business activation there too and see what gorgeous groups I'm running right now, whether it's Spiritual Coaching Academy, Sacred Sisters, or my High Level Elevate Mastermind. And one last thing, remember to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, because I will be back with a new episode next week. So sending lots of love and I'll see you then.